Last week we honed in on the writer Jude, and we learned that he was the brother of Jesus and James, and he was also a bond servant. And we talked a little bit about that, and then we uh, went on to study the recipients of the letter, identified in verse 1 as those who were called, sanctified, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, it's Jude writing to Christians then. But don't tune it out because it's Jude, it's actually God writing to Christians now. And so today we're going to see three things. In verse 2, we see the salutation. In verse 3, we'll see the exhortation. And then in verse 4, we'll see the infiltration. And so let me begin in verse 1 where we, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And then the salutation, where we read these words, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so here's the, the salutation. Uh, and that's defined as a gesture or utterance made as a greeting or acknowledgement of another person. And so uh, usually when we see people, we'll say good morning to you, good afternoon, sometimes, a, you know, a good evening. Uh, we might say, hi, how are you, you know, or it's so good to see you. And so um, when you look at that, I think that we need to be careful that we don't just read this and then fly by. That would be like you saying, hi, so good to see you, but I'm just saying that because I want to get past you, you know. I mean, hello, how are you? I mean, seriously, it's a question. And I ask people when I see them, hey, how are you? And you can tell sometimes by their answers, not always. They say, I'm doing good. And then it's kind of like, oh, it's, they're having a good day. Good. And you can almost hear it in, in their voice. You know what? They don't sound too good, man. You know, but do you care? Is it just a greeting that you say hi so that you can go by? You know, it's good to see you. Is it really good to see you or are you just saying that, you know? I mean, there's a salutation here. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied that, that Jude shares that we need to make sure that we don't just fly by. I mean, these words, they really mean something, right? I mean, the Greek word translated mercy here is defined as goodness or kindness towards the hurting, joined with a desire to help them even if they're not worthy. Mercy means not receiving the punishment that we deserve. That's mercy. Because the bottom line is we're all guilty of sin somehow, some way, every day. And, and thank God that our God is a merciful God who's rich in mercy, who does not deal with us according to our sins. You know, we read in Psalms 103, verse 10 and 11, it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. Think about that. As the heavens are high above the earth, that's how great His mercy is towards us every single day. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, it says, Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, every morning I wake up and I spend time with God and I always thank him for not giving me 
what I deserve. You know, honestly, and I'm not just, you know, saying that. I mean it with all my heart. The sins that I'm aware of, the sins that I'm not aware of. If he were to deal with us according to our iniquities, we'd be in hell. He would smash us like a bug. None of us would be able to live. And so when he's speaking mercy, he's saying something pretty powerful. You know, we need that mercy every morning. Every morning I wake up and I say, Lord, mercy me, mercy me, because I need it. You know, isn't it funny how for everyone else we want justice, but for ourselves we want mercy? It's funny how it works, huh? We've got to be careful. The story is told of a wealthy businessman who, after receiving the proofs of a portrait, was angry with the photographer. And he stormed back to the photographer and he said, this picture doesn't do me justice. And the photographer said, sir, with a face like yours, I'm sorry, you, you need more than justice. You need mercy, man. <laughs> and the truth is, and I don't care who you are, you may think that you got it, you know, like you're, you got it all together. Listen, with a life like ours, we don't need justice. We need mercy no matter who you are. You know, thank God for the cross where justice was served. But as far as who we are, we need mercy. Jude, Jude prays mercy over their lives. And then secondly, he prays peace. Notice again there in verse 2, mercy. And then the next word is peace. And the Greek word translated peace is defined as a state of tranquility, free from the rage of war within. It's a harmony of heart. And the greatest peace of all, of course, is peace with God. And then when we experience peace with God, then what should follow is the peace of God. And I don't know if you're here, you're stressed out, you're freaked out, you've got a lot of anxious thoughts or anxiety, depression, all that kind of craziness that kind of seeps into our life. You know, we're Christians. We shouldn't have that. We, when we make peace with God, then there should be the peace of God. You know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of our sins, we make ourselves enemies of God. And let me tell you something, man. You don't want to be an enemy with God. And so when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're justified, you're forgiven, and then you make peace with God and when that happens, man, the burden's lifted. You know that if you're going to die, you're, you die and you go to heaven. Man, you know that he loves you because you're saved now. It's amazing the peace that then follows. You know, uh, Philippians 4, 7, it speaks of the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding and guards our mind and heart in Christ Jesus Colossians 3.15, it says, uh, let the peace of, of God, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And so, just out of curiosity, how about you? Have you made peace with God? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I pray that today you would make a decision to follow Christ. Have you said yes to his proposal? You know, I was reading, and you know, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we hear these things, of course, right? Did you guys hear about J-Lo and Alex Rodriguez? Alex Rodriguez, he gave her a, a ring. He proposed to marry her. The ring, a million-dollar ring. A million-dollar for one ring. 
Mine costs 20 bucks. His, hers, um, <laughs> a million dollar ring, right? And so, of course, if you're out there in the world and somebody gives you a million dollar ring, I'll bet you almost anything you're going to say yes, because even if I don't like you, I got me a million dollars, right? <laughs> and so, but for us, the way that it works is that we're the bride of Christ. He has proposed to us, offering us uh, infinitely more than a million dollars. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about love. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about power. We're talking about the riches that are spiritual. He offers that to you. Question, have you said yes to Jesus? When you do and you place your faith in him, you repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God. And then from that point forward, my prayer is that you would experience the peace of God. Do you have that that peace. It's such a beautiful place to be, not just a peace of peace, but Isaiah 26, 3, it speaks of a perfect peace when our mind is stayed on him. Question, here today, Christians, don't mess around. Do you have that peace? Keep your eyes on the Lord. It's so important that we have this understanding of what mercy is, of what, what peace is. You know, it's interesting. Albert Einstein said that peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved, he said, by understanding. You know, but I would say to Albert Einstein, you need to be more specific. It's not by understanding science or political science or the theory of relativity. It comes really by understanding God's love and plan of salvation. By understanding that though he's holy and I'm not, my salvation he has bought. When you understand that, then you have peace. Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace. That's why Francis Roberts said, Finding God, you have no need to seek peace, for he himself is our peace. How? Colossians 1.20, it says, He made peace through the blood of his cross. And so when God looks at you and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're covered with the blood of Jesus. You're bathed in his blood. You have life in his love. You have peace from above. And as we're reading the salutation, don't just, you know, fly by, you know, because whatever, you're just saying hi. No, Judah's saying, I'm praying this over your life. Mercy, that God wouldn't give you what you deserve. Peace with God, peace of God. Do you have that peace? I pray you do. Even though I know life is hard, praise God, we have life as Christians. You know, picture a massive hurricane raging over the ocean. And on the surface of the sea, the winds are violent and they're whipping the water. Can you guys visualize that with these giant waves and cresting storms of confusion and chaos and you can see that right there over the ocean but then you just go down a little bit just about 25 feet beneath the surface and the waters are clear and calm and the fish they just go on swimming and living their lives unaffected by the storms above them you know and i'm not saying that you know things aren't aren't, aren't real but, but maybe we need to stop skimming the surface and start swimming deeper 
Maybe we need to dare to understand, as Einstein said, understand that our God loves us and he's going to make sense of all those storms and he works all, all, all things together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. And so we need to learn our lessons from the, the fish where there is depth, there is peace. And so it is in the Christian life. You know, he, he speaks these, these words, and I'm telling you, there's a sermon in every word. Mercy, peace, and love, he says, be multiplied to you. The, the Greek word translated love is, is agape, defined as affection, goodwill, benevolence. And when you study Greek literature, you'll find it wasn't used a lot. It was actually catapulted to prominence by Christianity. And it basically came to mean God's love. Uh, God's love as demonstrated in Christ. You know, in the Greek language, there are different words for love. Eros, which is more of the erotic, romantic love. Uh, you have phileo, which is a friendship, a love slash like. You have storge, which is a beautiful, beautiful family love. But then you have agape love, how beautiful it is. Because what it is, is speaks of the love of God, which never changes because God never changes. You have a good day, he still loves you. It's an unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love that God will do whatever he has to do in order to bring us to that place where we need to be in right relationship with him. Agape love is rooted in the lover and their virtue, not necessarily in the one who's loved. And we need to know and grow in the truth that God loves us. A love proven and demonstrated at the cross where Jesus died for us. You know, and I don't know how it is in your life, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a pastor, and I am trying my hardest to be holy and to make sure my house is in order and to make sure my heart is right. But I still have to tell myself over and over again, Manny, God loves you. I know it's hard. I know you're going through this, that, and the other. But I have to remind myself all the time, Manny, God loves you. You know, and, and that's why later in the same verse, I mean, the same chapter, verse 21, Jude says, keep yourself, keep yourselves in the love of God. And so what, what healthy Christians, they begin to get a, an understanding of mercy. They get an understanding of, of these words of, of peace and of love. And this is what Jude is saying right here. And not just a little bit. Notice again what we read in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So not just supplied, but we're talking amplified. We're talking multiplied. This is what his prayer is. Other translations say the oars in abundance or, or lavished upon you. And so even in the greeting, he's praying for them. And it's kind of cool. We could do that with each other, huh? We should start doing that with each other. Rather than saying, hey, what's up? You can just say, peace, peace. And now we know what it means. Peace with God, peace of God. We can say, mercy. And I don't know if you guys know the hand gestures on what, how mercy is. I think it's like this. That's mercy. You can do that. Can you guys do that? Even though it's difficult. Because love is like this, right? Love you. Do you love me? Come on. Come on, show it. 
right? And then mercy is you bring that ring finger up a little bit, and then you just kind of... Gestures, gestures. I'm sorry. I don't know why I do that, but... Um, <laughs> It, salutation, they're gestures. Sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a physical gesture. Sometimes it's a word that you say. But it's not, it's not random. It's not meaningless. So good to see you. Now, peace, bro. I love you. How are you doing? Let's talk. I mean, these are the things. Good day to you. Good afternoon to you. Good evening. We, we mean this. Jude meant this. God meant this when he wrote these things here. And, and then it's interesting, the, the love is then repeated as he moves from the salutation to the exhortation. Notice in verse 3, he says, Beloved. There, there's that word. He, right off the bat, he's telling them, I love you. More importantly, God loves you. And he's going to say it again in verse 17 of this letter. And again in verse 20, uh, I want you to know that what I'm about to write to you and what I'm about to share with you is motivated by love. And I need to warn you, he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so Jude here is going to write to us to contend earnestly for the faith. And, and what he's doing is he's sharing this message because in one sense it was a dangerous place where the church was in. You know, the Bible talks about how in the last days things are, are going to get worse. You know, and I don't know. I mean, I don't want to give you guys a, some type of complex or paranoia, but you have to be careful, huh? The other day I saw, I saw a video and someone shared about um, the sex traffickers that are out there. And so you got these young ladies and they go to the store by themselves late at night and you've got kidnappers there, sex traffickers there ready to pick them up and put them in their car and take them away. And so what I would say to you, because I love you, don't go to the store, ladies, late at night. I even heard a story, and again, not trying to freak you out or no, no paranoia here, but we need to be so careful. If you guys heard the other day, a young lady was coming home, and as she went into her, her door, her house, a man followed her into the house, closed the door, and raped her. Do you guys, you guys heard that story? You hear stories like this. And so, you know, you're like, well, Randy, you're sensationalistic. Why are you trying to say stuff? Why are you even informing us about these things? Ultimately, it's just be careful. Be careful. Be wise. You know, don't go out there by yourself, ladies. And, and all of us here need to be so careful. In the church today, there are heretics, there are wolves in the church. And so we need an extra sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, right? And so what do we do? We warn people. You know, right here Jude was saying, I just wanted to do something casual, just write you a letter about our common salvation. But it came to my, my, my understanding that there are casualties now in the church, and so we can't be casual. Uh, sometimes, you know, you want to say this thing, I, you want to hear this thing, but there's a difference. We know the difference between wanting to do something and needing to do something. 
And my kids might want things, and I can't always give them what they want, but I must always give them what they need. And what he was saying right here is, I wanted to write to you a letter, I was very diligent to write a letter regarding our common salvation, but I found it necessary rather to give you an exhortation. It's going to be a warning of what's really going on in the church. You know, in the 19th century preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he spoke long ago about how some pastors, they don't warn the sheep even though there are wolves among them. He likens these guys to dogs that don't know how to bark. And I was thinking about that. Imagine having a dog that didn't bark. You know, dog, I love my dog Chip. I think he's in heaven, but, you know, um, that's a different story. But he's a perfect dog in that sense that he knew when to bark. You know how some dogs bark too much? It's, man, they're broken, man. And you know how, and then other dogs, you know, they're made to bark. They, they bark when, you know, they should. And that's where Chip was a perfect dog. I remember one time he barked. And so my wife came, and he was barking, and so she looks out the window. It turns out that there were some guys that were robbing the house across the street, and our dog was sensitive to that, and so he barked. So my wife called the police. The police came. They surrounded the home, and there was a man in there who was, uh, uh, he was bedridden. I don't know what they would have did, done to him or who, besides taking stuff. And because our dog barked, we called the police, they surrounded the home, and they caught the guys. Save, who knows, maybe saving a life. This is why, you know, dogs need to bark. This is why preachers need to warn, not always a comfortable message. Spurgeon went on to say, the church nowadays, they, it's like comfortable people leaving their comfortable homes, arriving in their comfortable churches, only to hear comfortable sermons. And it's so right. No wonder we see the church the way it is today. Jude says, listen, I was ready to write about our common salvation, but it turns out that the Holy Spirit, he has a better letter, a word of exhortation. That's a word of warning, a word urging us to do something different, to be on guard. And, and what he's telling us to do is to contend earnestly for the faith. We read that there in verse 3, beloved, well, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in the, in the Greek language, the two words contend earnestly are actually one compound word in the Greek and it basically is an intensified form of the word agonize. And so what I'm going to ask you guys to do and what Jude is asking us to do is to fight. To fight earnestly with intensity, if necessary, to the point of agony. Fight for the faith. And that's why I was calling you young people, you 18 to 29-year-olds, you know, because... You know, you have to rise up and take your place in the church. We're passing the baton on to you because if, if you don't take that baton and run with it, what will happen to the church in the United States of America? Now listen, Jesus will always have his church. There will always be a remnant because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
But you go over the ocean and you go to England today and it is a small remnant of the church. It's barely, I mean, you go to these these churches that were huge, beautiful, where the Holy Spirit, where at one time he was moving in such a mighty way and now they're mosques. Why? Because they're not fighting for the faith. There was a generation that didn't fight for the faith. And we have to do that. You know, I remember when I was younger, I remember one day, and I still, in my mind, uh, a young guy, I was there with my friend Paul Siragusa, and I remember, you know, walking down the street, and then there was these two, uh, these two homeboys that came up to us, and, uh, and they basically wanted to fight, you know? And, uh, and so I looked at them, and they're bigger than us, you know? <laughs> They're dotted down and whatever, man. And so I said, no, nah, you know. <laughs> no, nah, I don't think so, you know. So you just gonna, you get humiliated, you know, and then, and then when they, and they, they walk away. And anyways, I was talking about my friend Paul afterwards. I said, listen, if that ever happens again, I don't care if we get beat up. Let's fight. Let's fight. Now, I'm not telling you to do that, okay? <laughs> it's probably better to walk away. But what I'm saying to you is spiritual. What I'm saying to you is spiritual. Don't back down. Don't stop believing and and reading and, and sharing and teaching the truth, the Bible. We have to contend earnestly for the faith. That's what Jude is saying right here. In in the Greek language, it's it's the word agonize. Webster's defines this word as to strive against difficulties, to strive, sometimes in debate and argument. As Christian contenders, we don't fight with our fists violently, but we do fight the good fight passionately. You know, and part of the way we fight, and there are so many things, and God will show you the details on how it all works, but you know, you just, man, you just find your place in the body of Christ. Find out where you belong, where you're supposed to be serving and serve. You know, you teach those little two-year-olds the Bible, you're fighting. You teach those five-year-olds, those first graders, those youth over there, you're fighting, you're sharing the word of God. You know, you join a prayer meeting, you're fighting. You know, you're an usher, you're involved in ministry, you're not just sitting back. You know, we could watch the boxing match from home or we can even go to Vegas or wherever and, you know, you watch it, but no, it's time to get in the ring. It's time for you to take your place and fight. And this is what we see. He's telling these guys, you need to contend earnestly for the faith. This is what Paul the Apostle did. And we read those words he spoke right before he went home to heaven in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. And it's the same, you know, mentality to protect the faith, to keep the faith. You know, it's what we believe. It's the faith. You're like, well, what is the faith? Well, listen, it's not some sort of subjective, ambiguous thing within us. No, the faith really is in reference here to the truth of God before us, the core truths of Christianity. It's a summary of Scripture ultimately pointing to Christ. And when anyone out there either out there or in here, they try to challenge the truth, the faith, and you fight. 
When I went to college, and I remember, I went to a secular school. I got saved when I was 22 years old. I was in my classroom fighting my teachers because they were lying to the students. They were telling them that they were just products of evolution and that all you know, religions were a farce. And, and I was in there fighting. And we need to do the same. And again, not that you're necessarily going to start an argument, but if anyone says anything that contradicts the truths, the core creeds of Christianity, if they speak blasphemous words against Jesus, we're going to fight. We need to do that. Back in the day, this is how they summarized Christianity. They called it the faith. I found it necessary, Jude says, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. You know, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, The word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so, in other words, these priests were saved by believing and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and they came to Christ. They came to Christianity. You know, we read later in Acts 16.5 something similar. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. You know, and so we need to fight for it. But of course, the devil will resist it. The devil doesn't take that lying down. He fights it tooth and nail. We read in Acts 13.8 that Elamus, the sorcerer, that was his name, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's what it says in Acts 13.8. And so Paul talked about this in writing to Timothy. He said the Spirit expressly says in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in the, the latter days, that's the last days, some will depart from the faith. You know, people who were sitting right where you're sitting, man, maybe even teaching, you know, in those pulpits, they, they depart from the faith. First Timothy 6.10, it says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith. We read the same thing in First Timothy 6.20-21 where he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. And so, you know, we want you to go to heaven. Beloved, it's because we love you. God put the love in us. God loves you. You need to stay on track. You need to test everyone who comes into the church because they might be a wolf in sheep's clothing. You need to test every single teaching. Does it line up with scripture? You know, you got these guys on television, half are, are off, at least half. A lot of these guys on the radio, they're just rambling. They're not really teaching the word. You know, it's a book in the Christian store or whatever the website is that you go to, some video on YouTube. And it's just crazy what's out there. We need to be so careful because people are straying from the faith. Well, some say, well, they never knew the Lord. Others say, well, eventually they'll, they'll come back. I don't know. All I know is what the Bible says. And I remember one time, you know, when my wife and I, we first got saved, we went to a new believers class. And so this guy, uh, Tim Thibodeau, he was a, a great teacher, 
man, it seemed like he just had, had everything together. And so we went through the class two times. So that's like 14 weeks of sitting under his teaching. We got to know him really well, so much so that my wife's birthday, you know, we invited him over our house and we said, do a study for us. And so, you know, we had um, uh, all these young adults come to her house because there was a time when I was a young adult and, and we were all there, man, and he taught us a Bible study. And it was amazing. But then, you know, fast forward a few years, he leaves his wife, he leaves his kids, he leaves Jesus. He doesn't believe anymore. And that's why Jude is, is warning you, you have to be careful. This is a, something motivated by love. There's going to be men in here who come in here. They come in the church. They say they're Christians and they're going to tell you lies. They're going to try to, you know, lead you the wrong way. Watch out for them. As a matter of fact, we need to fight. You know, right here, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, that's what I wanted to do. I, I found it necessary. I, I need to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And, and so a couple of things, very important right there. First of all, it's important for us to know that the faith was delivered once for all. Not twice. There's no new revelation. You know, some churches, what they do is they elevate their pastors or the, like the Catholic church or the Mormon church, and they say, we're just as important as the Bible. And so when they make themselves just as important as the Bible, then they add new truth. Well, they say, well, now you can pray to Mary. Now you can pray to the saints. You know, now you got this thing called purgatory and they start teaching things that are not biblical. You know, and, and so uh, what he's saying is, no, the faith has been delivered once for all. There's no new revelation. It's been delivered once for all. You know, one commentator put it this way. This is said to have been given once for all so that there's no repetition or extension of the gift. It is described further as committed not to the church as an organization, not to any particular office bearer, but to the saints in general. Do you see that right there? Look how important this is. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the church, the pastors, no, the saints. The saints are the Christians. It's everyone who's made holy by their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's delivered to everyone. There's no new revelation. You know, understand this, that if it's new, it's not true, right? And if anyone tries to add to the Bible, then they're going to be in big trouble because we read in Revelation 22, 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the, the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And so we fight. You guys, you know how it is, like, you know, the game's on the line, and we probably shouldn't talk about the Lakers, but any basketball team that you want to think of. And so they go in in the fourth quarter, and let's just say you're behind. You know, you're behind. 
maybe that group that's there in the fourth quarter will actually, you know, play in such a way that they take the lead. I, I feel like in the church today, there is an apostasy. In the church today, it's almost like we're behind. It's getting worse. But what if we rise up? And I still got a couple of years left, but maybe some of you younger people, you rise up. We rise up with love and passion, willing to fight, to agonize, to take ourselves out of the world that we're so caught up in, we're so worldly, and to become holy and to fight. And what if? What if there was a tide that turns? What if the church grew strong because people understood what we're talking about right here? I'm not giving up on that. But you have to take your relationship with God seriously. He has to be number one in your life. What he's sharing right here is so important. There's a, the salutation. It's not random. There's the exhortation to contend earnestly for the faith. And then there is this infiltration. And this is the reason, he says in verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, the, the reason I'm saying this is because there's some creepy guys out there, man. They crept into the church and there's this infiltration. And we're going to spend the whole book of Jude, we're going to talk about the details of this. But in a nutshell, I, I think when you read it, it's kind of funny. The three things that they say are most common for men to fall are all there. Pride, sex for women, and money. And you're going to see that because that's the way guys are. And it even goes into the church because they're just guys. They're just wolves. They're like beasts. They're not really holy. These guys, they've crept into the church. You know, the enemy opposes the church uh, sometimes from the outside where he persecutes it. But usually when there's persecution, there's purification. We see that in China today. That's why the church over there is so strong. But so the enemy knows, well, I can't necessarily get him from the outside. So he joins the church and he comes in on the inside. And so today, rather than fighting the church, the enemy joins it. And then Jesus spoke about this as those guys being wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew seven fifteen. There are tares among the wheat, Matthew thirteen twenty five, and there there are bad birds in the branches, Matthew thirteen thirty two, and that's what Jude is talking about here. These guys who came in, they were unnoticed by men. They came in secretly. Paul wrote on how they came in by stealth, in other words, under the radar in Galatians chapter two and verse four. And so they, don't even, they just kind of blend in. You don't notice, but God notices. And one of the things Jude teaches right here is that the judgment of these men is set in stone. For certain men, he says in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. You, know, you see the guys, and my heart goes out to you, especially you young people, because I know a lot of the young people, they're just looking for someone who's real. And they see this guy up there, he's supposed to be representing Christ, and 
you know, he's talking about Jesus, but he's asking for money. And it just turns their stomach. You know, and, and these guys, they get rich. They're driving Bentleys. They live in mansions. While they're fleecing the flock, listen, one day God's going to get them. And I think there's a hot spot in hell because what that is is the, you know, perversity. What, what is perversion? It's, it's the taking something good and making it bad. And that's why a pervert is called a pervert. You take something good and, and makes it bad. But the greatest perversion is when people pervert the gospel. And, and so these guys, their condemnation, God already, God's going to get them. It's set in stone, so whatever you do, you know, don't follow them. They're ungodly men teaching that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. That's what he says right there. For, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. And so you want to shoot up heroin? You can probably find a, a church that says it's okay. You want to be a homosexual? You can find a church over there that says it's okay. You want to commit a fornication? You know, which is sex before marriage? There's a church down the street that says, yeah, it's okay as long as you love each other. There are people that come into the church, these guys, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, and they go and they woo this girl and they get to know her and they quote the Bible to her. Next thing you know, they say, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. God will forgive us. You know, now what are, what are they doing? They're turning this grace of God. Yeah, he does forgive, but they're turning it into a license to sin. And sometimes churches will teach it, you know, I remember one dear brother, he told me he went to a men's group and they were taking shots. Man, a lot of guys would join that men's group, huh? Because yeah, that church over there, they take shots. They, some church, oh yeah, it's okay. Some churches will teach it explicitly and other churches will teach it implicitly. And by that, I mean they just, they're soft on sin. You know, so you got a pastor over here and, and, and think about it. I mean, it's just crazy. He's sleeping with his son's girlfriend while he's leading trips to Israel and he's, you know, pastoring a church. You know, he's sleeping with his son's girlfriend. And so, you know, they say, hey, you can't be a pastor right here. You know what he does? He goes and he starts a church down the street. And people go to that church. Why? Because they say, well, God will forgive. God will forgive. Yeah, God will forgive, but he can't be a pastor. What are you teaching the people? What are you teaching the people when the one who's supposed to be the pastor falls into sexual sin or robs people of money or, or different things? And when he's found out, he just kind of, they give him a little slap and then he goes down and he starts another church over there. What are they teaching the people? 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, it says he has to be a husband of one wife. And then literally in the Greek language, a one woman man. Now, you know, if it happens before Christ, that's different. But not when he's a Christian, and especially not when he's a pastor. God will forgive anyone any sin. But, you know, we have to be so careful that we're not teaching people, whether it be explicitly or implicitly, that it's okay, you know, just go ahead and just do whatever you want because, you know, God will forgive you. No, we can't do that. 
what they do ultimately, and we're going to see later, is they deny the Lord. And so Jude warns them. He warns the people he loves. Don't buy the lie. Don't listen to their unbiblical teachings. Don't join them because they're on their way to judgment. And don't sit back idly either, living too calmly, silently. No, contend earnestly for the faith. Don't be casual in your Christianity because you might end up a casualty. And what, what we're looking at here is a warning. It, it, it might be like this, and I don't know if this is a perfect illustration, but I'm sure you've heard it before. You guys ever go on an airplane? You go on an airplane flight and the, they're telling you all the instructions of what to do. You know, if the plane goes down, most of you here, you don't listen, right? You're like, you don't have no idea what they're saying, right? Well, this, you know, whatever, you've, you know, first you, you know, get yourself some oxygen, then you help your little one, and this is how, you know, whatever, you get the, they should have parachutes on, but they don't have parachutes. They have these life vests and stuff. And, uh, and so we don't pay attention. But what if the plane was going down? And then all of a sudden the instructions came on. How many of us antennas would perk up? <laughs> I think in one sense, the plane is going down. That's, that's where we're living in the last days. And again, Jesus will always have his church. Don't misunderstand me. But unless there's some type of shift in our nation that pulls the plane back up, our country will suffer what England is suffering now. And this is why I'm saying we need to rise up. It's a warning because not only do I love you and I know our our leaders love you and Christians. We love each other here, but it's because God loves you. And we need to take heed to this warning. Listen, listen to me. It's in the church. It's in the church visible. People who say they're Christians and they're not. And that's why it's so important that we take heed to the warning and we know his word. Test everything I say test everything they say because this was delivered to all the saints so that they could be Bereans who do that. You know, during the 1982 war in the Falkland Islands between England and Argentina, the Royal Navy's 3,500-ton destroyer Sheffield was sunk by a single missile fired from an Argentine fighter jet it caused some people to wonder if modern surface warships were obsolete, if they were sitting ducks for today's sophisticated missiles. But a thorough investigation revealed that the Sheffield's defenses did pick up the missile and the ship's computer correctly identified it as a French-made missile. But the computer was programmed to ignore these particular missiles as friendly when in all reality, they were not friends, they were foes. God help us to know the difference. I mean, there's a place for being united. There's also a place where we need to divide. And if they're coming against the faith, against Jesus, against what Christianity teaches, my prayer is that we would contend earnestly for the faith.